Well, good morning to you. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Acts. Book of Acts chapter 4. We're going to start this morning in uh, verse 32 and read through verse 37. As you're turning there to Acts 4.32, let me just say happy uh, Memorial Day weekend to all of you. We are very, very grateful for all the many men and women who have given their lives uh, to keep us safe in in this country and to allow us to, to worship God uh, freely and publicly. If, if you have served in the military in any way or you have relatives who have, we would just like to say thank you as a church. Uh, we are blessed uh, to have all the many uh, servicemen and women in our country who have served so very, very well. So happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Uh, I have been preaching through the book of Acts. That's what we typically do here in our church family is, is preach through different books of the Bible. Uh, the, the book of Acts is the historical account of the early church after the ascension of Jesus. Jesus came to earth, he lived, died, and he rose again to pay the penalty for sins. He ascended to heaven. And the book of Acts then is a book of facts telling us what the early Christians then did in order to spread the news about Christ uh, in Jerusalem, in the area where Christ had been crucified, extending then outward uh, to Judea and Samaria and ultimately towards the ends of the earth. And we are now in Acts 4. We'll be reading verses 32 through 37. Uh, Let's pray before uh, we get going here. Father, we are just so grateful for your word. We believe, Father, that uh, you work in and through your people, uh, in and through your word. This is one of those ordinary means of grace through which you work to supply your people with grace. It is through your word that, that you call those who don't yet know Christ to faith in Christ. It is through your word that you then mold your people, sanctify your people. Father, we don't want to neglect your word, overlook your word. We don't want to open your word with passive, lazy hearts and minds. So, Father, we would just look to you and ask for uh, the ministry of your Holy Spirit now, that you would stir our hearts and minds, that you would illumine our hearts that we might understand your word. And Father, ultimately we would pray as we look at your word, this, this book here, we pray, Father, that you, would, that you would bring us to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just want to know black words on a white page. We want to go through your word to the living word. So Father, we would just ask that you would do these things for us today, uh, for your glory And for our eternal joy, we do thank you for it, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, if there's if there's one thing that people in our country know very well, if there's one thing we're very familiar with here in America, it is independence, individualism, acting alone, going solo, uh, depending on no one. Uh, this country, after all, was, was founded upon independence, breaking from Great Britain and signing the Declaration of Independence, the, the bald eagle, the very picture of, of independence. And most Americans live like that. Uh, President Herbert Hoover, early 1900s, he, he talked about a rugged individualism in America. Just this go-it-alone attitude. And most Americans now live very isolated lives. Just just me and my family, to a large degree, relatively disconnected from others, relatively alone. It's, It's strange when you think about it, because we live in a world that seems to be more connected than ever. With Facebook and, and, and Twitter and, and Instagram seemingly bringing us closer 
less alone, more, more dependent upon others, but it's just left us all the more isolated. We've, we've replaced face-to-face human contact with, with emails and texts. Uh, we do online banking and online shopping. We work alone. We, we watch TV alone. We parent alone. Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And after 500,000 interviews over a 25-year span, he concluded that Americans are becoming increasingly disconnected, even bowling alone. More people than ever now bowling, but not as much in leagues, but all by themselves. And it's not much different for Christians in America. Driving to services alone, me and my family, slipping in and slipping out, or, or just listening to sermons online, or you can now watch entire church services online, online church, or churches like Daytona Beach Church now hold services at a drive-in, so you can drive up, watch, and drive away. Just this epidemic in our culture of independence, isolated, individualistic, very, very alone. But that is not how God created us to live. No, no, God created us to be not independent, but dependent upon Him and upon other, other people. God, God created us to be not disconnected, but very interconnected. God, God created us as human beings to live not alone, just me and my family, but to live in community. God created us for relationship, and God transforms us in and by relationship. And the one place on planet Earth where, where, where we should taste the most robust and, and interconnected relational community is in the local church family, the, the body of Christ, the community of faith. And, and God, throughout the book of Acts here, God gives us several pictures of what a healthy community of faith looks like. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, at several places in this book, he gives us these little descriptions of the early church. We saw one back in Acts 2. We'll see another in Acts 5. And we we now see one here, this this description now of the early church in, in Jerusalem. And God is showing us here, I believe, what a healthy community of faith looks like. Let's go ahead and read it, starting in, in verse 32. Uh, sorry, I'm in the, well, 32, I'm in the wrong chapter. Okay, chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And God has just given us there, I believe, this this little picture of what a healthy community of faith, a healthy church, looks like. I believe we can see five characteristics there of a healthy community of faith. And, and the first thing we see there, number one, we see, we see unity among the believers in this local church here in Jerusalem. If you look at verse 32 again, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And, and you may not notice it at first glance, but man, that is an amazing statement by Luke. 
Because if you followed through this book and you've looked at the numbers of believers that he's talked about already in this book, this church in Jerusalem now probably consists of some 15 to 20,000 Christians meeting in their homes and in the temple, Acts 2 said, eating together, praying together, this network of believers now spread out through Jerusalem, and the full number of them, Luke now says, are of one heart and soul. Just this deep down fundamental unity among these early Christians there. And man, unity like that is just so important for a local church. And it is precious in the eyes of God. If you read through the Bible, you'll see that unity among God's people is one of the most prized of all things in the eyes of God. David in Psalm 133, he says this, he says, Behold how good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell in unity, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Just the preciousness of unity among God's people. And Jesus himself, while he was still on this earth with these Christians right here, what Jesus prayed. He had prayed for this unity that we now see in the book of Acts. John 17, 11, Jesus had prayed this. He prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we, Father, are one. And I do not ask, Father, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And you see what he's saying there. Father, I don't just pray for these early Christians right here. No, I pray for all the people around the world who will ultimately believe in me through their word. He was praying for all the Christians throughout the face of this planet. And what does he pray there? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and that the world may know that you loved them even as you loved me. And and you just stop and you step back away from that little prayer right there. Jesus was praying for our unity. He was praying for us that we would be perfectly one with the other believers in our local church family and that, that this local church family would be perfectly one with other church families. And why is this unity so important to Jesus? Well, one, one reason is because it's a glorious reflection of the Trinity. Did you catch what Jesus prayed there in John 17? He prayed, he prayed there that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they they have lived for all eternity in a perfect unity with, with one another. And as we live in unity, we reflect the very nature of God himself. But you know what? There is also great power in our unity. And 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 again, did you catch what what Jesus said in John 17? Here it is. I pray, Father, that they may all be one. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I pray, Father, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know, Father, that you sent me and you love them even as you loved me. And it's hard to understand, but, but the unity among believers just does something for the watching world. It is a powerful testimony to the watching world that Jesus is real. That there is something about our our oneness that helps to convince our lost world 
that God the Father truly sent Jesus and that God the Father truly loves us just as he loves Jesus. It's just so powerful to the watching world when believers dwell in unity. Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, and if we are surrounded by a world which no longer believes in the concept of truth, well, certainly we cannot expect people to have any interest in whether a man's doctrine or teaching or words are correct or not, but Jesus did give the mark that will arrest the attention of the world. Even the attention of the modern man, there is something that can be in every geographical climate, in every point of time, which cannot fail to arrest his attention. What is it? The love that true Christians show for each other. A loving unity among among believers is just so powerful. It's attractive to the watching world. It somehow arrests the attention of the watching world when they see believers in true loving unity with one another. It makes them stop and say, what is going on with this group of people? It's just so powerful. But listen, this unity among believers that these early disciples had here This unity is something that must be cultivated. We must work at unity. You know, there's a sense in which the second you truly become a Christian, you are already one with with all the other Christians in, in your local church. You don't work at it. You just already are. The second you become a Christian, you are one with the other Christians in your church because Every true Christian has the same indwelling Holy Spirit within them. This this natural inborn unity now, a a bond in the Spirit, a a, a common love for for Christ. You know, if you take a if you take a hundred pianos and you tune all of those different pianos to the same tuning fork. Well, they will all just naturally be in tune with one another simply because they're all tuned to the exact same thing. And when you truly become a Christian, the Spirit has now tuned you and every other Christian to the exact same thing. There is a natural love and desire in all of your hearts for Christ. And you are just naturally, therefore, in tune with each other to some degree. Christians might have very different tastes, might have very different interests, might look very different on the surface, and yet below the surface there is this natural inborn unity, a bond in the Spirit, a common love for Jesus Christ. So there is a sense in which the second you become a Christian, you are one with the other Christians in your local church. But there's another sense where where this unity is also something that we must work for. We, We must strive for this unity as believers. Why? Because we're all still sinners. And we are all still very prone to go in the direction of disunity and disharmony, and and discord, and independence, and individualism, and, and, and isolation. Every Christian is still sinfully prone to go in the direction of our culture, away from unity, towards disunity. And we must work, man, we must work as believers to, 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 to cultivate and then to protect this precious unity among believers in our local church family. There are just so many places in the Bible where God tells us as Christians to strive for unity. Philippians 1.27 Only let your manner of life, Christians, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Or Philippians 2.2. Complete my joy, Christians, by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Or Romans 12, 16, live in harmony, Christians, with one another. That unity is just so precious, so powerful in the eyes of God. So let me ask you, Christian, are, are you striving for unity, oneness between you and the other Christians in, in your local church family right here? Is that something you're working for? Is that something you are working to, to protect, working hard to live in harmony with the other, the other Christians here or in, in your life group? Has something caused disunity? Or disharmony, fractures between you and another segment of the population here in this church family. May God, may God help all of us. Not, 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 not just to, 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 to overlook our unity, take it for granted. May God help us to, to strive for and to protect the unity, the bond we have in the Holy Spirit and in Christ. That's one characteristic of a healthy community of faith we see here is unity. A, a second characteristic of a healthy uh, community of faith that we see here is sharing. If you look at verse 32 again, these Christians, they were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That's a mind-blowing statement again. It, just this common sharing of their things with one another. They had everything in common. And the Greek word for common there is the word koinos, which is connected to the word koinonia, or fellowship. True biblical fellowship, true church fellowship, it involves a common sharing of our things with one another. Now, it wasn't a forced sharing here. It wasn't some sort of, of Christian communism where in order to join, you had to share your stuff with other believers. It wasn't that. Some people have interpreted it as that. The Hutterites, a branch of Christian Anab Anabaptists started by Jacob Hutter, 16th century, there are still several Hutterite colonies in Minnesota to this day. And they believe that that passage right there teaches a form of Christian communism. And for those of you who would like to join the Hutterites today, if you want to find one of those colonies and, and join, well, just know before you drive out there that they will require you to give up all your personal property to that community, to the Hutterite colony. But these early Christians, they were not giving up all their personal property. We will see in Acts that people still owned homes. Nobody here was forced to share anything. Peter will say in the very next passage, he will say that Ananias' things were his own. They were at his own disposal to do with as he saw fit. No, nobody forcing these Christians to share. But please don't miss the point here. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. This was still a very radical, generous, voluntary sharing of their things with the other believers in their Christian community. John Stott says this. He says, although in fact and in law they continue to own their goods, yet in heart and mind, they cultivated an attitude so radical that they thought of their possessions as being available to their sisters and brothers. Whatever is mine is yours. Whatever is yours is mine. That's radical, uh, especially in our American independent, whatever's mine is mine culture. Back off, my friend. Uh, this, this, though, it wasn't a communism. You know what it was? It was just biblical community. That's what, that's what it was. 
just a healthy biblical koinonia fellowship. Communism, communism says whatever's yours is everyone's. You must give it up. (laughs) But Christian community says whatever's mine is yours. I willingly give it up because that's what Jesus Christ did for me. Giving up all he owned for me. Let me ask you, Christian, is that how you view your things? Is that how you you view your things? That they're not truly your own. They are owned by God. And you are just a steward of some of God's things. And are you freely sharing God's things with the other Christians in in your local church community? That's the second characteristic here of a healthy community of faith. There's unity, now sharing. And a third thing that we see here, number three, is witness. It's witness. If you look at verse 33 again. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Man, Jesus initially chose these apostles and he said, you will go out as my witnesses. And they have gone out everywhere already talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is risen from the dead. And notice that nobody comes up to them and says, no, he's not. His body's right over here. Let us go show you. No, the people in, the, in this area knew. Jesus, his body was no longer there. He had come out of the grave. And they've gone everywhere to tell people Jesus is, is risen from the dead. And man, their, 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 their courageous and, and powerful testimony here of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that is a direct answer to the prayers of these apostles right here. Those of you who have been tracking with us through the book of Acts, you know that earlier in Acts 4, Peter and John were threatened by the religious leaders. They were warned, you stop preaching about Christ here in this area. So, so what did the early Christians did? Well, they circled the wagons earlier in chapter 4, and they prayed to God, Oh God, help us to continue to preach Christ boldly. And God answered their prayers right up there in verse 31. Luke said they were all then filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to preach Christ with boldness. And now here, just two verses later, Luke now says they were giving their testimony concerning Christ's resurrection with great power. It's still just this Holy Spirit boldness. This this power to, to preach Christ in answer to their earlier prayers. These are early Christians. They just continued to evangelize. Even in the face of, of, of threats and, and, and warnings. They just continued to share the good, news, the good news message about Christ with the lost. With those who had not yet heard. With, with those who had not yet had a chance to turn to Christ in faith and, and be forgiven. And that right there, it is another mark of a healthy community of faith. Our witness, our evangelism to a lost world. We don't wall ourselves up in in our homes and in our church buildings and just talk about the good news gospel message with one another. But but we look to spread it out. We love the lost and move towards the lost, and we, we look for avenues to share Christ with the lost. That's a mark of a healthy church community. Mark Dever, lead pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C., he wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And Dever lists evangelism as one of the nine marks of a healthy church. He says this, he says, another important mark of a healthy church then, is a biblical understanding and practice of evangelism. This witness that we see here, this is a characteristic of a healthy community of faith. 
If some of you are familiar with, 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 with churches, your church experience has been just wall yourself up with other Christians, stay away from the world because it's dangerous, don't look at the world, don't touch the world, don't pursue the world, then that is an unhealthy church body. Please hear that again. That is an unhealthy church. Jesus never walled himself off from the lost. He was continually pursuing the lost. And healthy churches today will be actively pursuing the lost. And a Christian community not actively looking to evangelize is just not a healthy community. A healthy community is both inward and outward, both mutual care and mission. And that's the third characteristic of a healthy community here. We have unity, sharing, and mission, or witness. And, and a fourth thing that we see here is, is charity. Just Christians giving aid to the other Christians in the community who are in need. Now, now Luke said earlier, up in verse 32... He, he said that these Christians were just naturally sharing with one another, just had everything in common. But now, in verse 34, he, he focuses on those in the community who had needs. If you look at verse 34 now, he says there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Please don't just read right past that. Think about that. Would you sell a home and give the proceeds to the needy? Would you, share, would you sell a piece of land and give the proceeds to needy Christians. That is a radical and very generous giving to Christians within the community who had needs. And once again, this was not a communism. People were not forced here to, to sell their things and give the proceeds to the poor within their community. It's not, it's not communism here. You, you know what it is. That's, again, just true community. That, that's just healthy, biblical, koinonia fellowship. The, the giving of your own things to the needy brothers and sisters around you, doing good to all, as Thomas earlier mentioned, especially to the household of faith. Caring for God's people around you with your own things. And once again, that is just so powerful for the watching world. No wonder the world won't listen at times to all of Christians' words if our actions don't back up our words. We can talk all day long about, uh, about Christ to, to the lost. But if the world doesn't see us truly loving one another, truly caring for one another, if we are Christians in word only and not Christians in word and deed, then all of our words become nothing but clanging symbols. 1 Corinthians 13. Derek Thomas says this. He says, Nothing destroys evangelism more than the hypocrisy of the messenger. The world's only knowledge of Jesus is what it sees in the lives of Christians. If what it sees is a community more concerned for self-promotion than for mutual support, why should it listen? It will turn away, hardened to the message of the gospel. Instead, what they witnessed in Jerusalem was a community in which those who had much sacrificed for the sakes of those who had little. It was a tangible expression of their love and such a great picture of Christ Himself who gave everything for our need. And Jesus now says, go and do likewise. 
for your brothers and sisters. And listen, what these early Christians were doing here in this early community of faith, I'm sure this charity to one another was one of the reasons why their witness about Christ was so powerful. Just thousands of people coming into the Christian faith. And one of the main reasons because they were seeing something different in this community of faith that they weren't seeing anywhere else around them. A radically bright Christian community. The world saw these Christians meeting one another's needs in sacrificial ways. And Luke gives us at the end of this passage here one example of lavish giving. This guy Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement or son of comfort. That right there is the first time that we've heard of Barnabas and we'll now hear about him all the way through the book of Acts. He will travel uh, pretty soon with the apostle Paul himself. And this guy Barnabas, all through the book of Acts, he will encourage or he will comfort people. This guy right here, I think this is one of Luke's heroes, is one of the reasons why he puts him out in Scripture for us right here. Do you know it's okay to commend people when they do godly things? Sometimes we don't like that. Oh, don't talk about me. Oh, yeah, well, Luke put Barnabas here in the Word of God, (laughs) commending him as an example of generosity, giving to the needs of the saints. He does it here, man, Barnabas. Sells his field, Luke says. And he gives the money for those in need. And listen, the whole community was doing stuff like this. Selling their stuff and giving to the other Christians in need. Luke makes an absolutely stunning statement there in verse 34. He says, there was not a needy person among them. Which is miraculous. Because many of these people, in order to become Christians, had given up everything. But because of the extravagant generosity of the Christians here, they're giving to one another. Luke says there was not a needy person among them. And that is some fifteen to 20,000 Christians most likely. Not a needy person there. Because of this extravagant generosity, giving to the needy Christians in their community. And do you know what? That has always been God's heart for his people. Way back in Deuteronomy 15.4, God said this. He said, but there will be no poor among you. I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 14, Paul says this. He says, your abundance, Christians, at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance in the the future might then supply your need. Or 1 John 3, 16, by this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in that person? Or the words of Jesus himself, Matthew 25, 37. Jesus says, then the righteous will answer and they'll say, Lord, when... This is at the judgment. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you, Jesus, sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And how could Jesus say that? Because we are now the very body of Christ himself. So if you give to the needy in the body of Christ, you have given to Christ himself. Another mark of a healthy community. It's a community where the Christians are meeting the needs of their fellow believers. And you might do that a number of ways here in this, in this Christ Redeemer Church family. 
you could just personally give of your own money, your own possessions, to Christians in need out there somewhere, outside of our body. You, you could give to Christian ministries that, that are in need. You could give to, to reach all nations in India, which, which our church supports. You, you could give to Living Tree Orphanage in China through Julie Zimmerman, which many of you have, have visited. But I would also encourage you, just look around your church here. Do you know, it, it, none of us, compared to the rest of the world, could probably be considered truly needy. I mean, half of the world's population survives on $2 a day. That is needy. But there are needs that do arise within our own community of faith here. Thomas, Thomas mentioned some. Maybe there's a lost job in our community of faith here. There's sudden medical expenses and you don't have the means to pay it. There's, there's, there's a death in the family, maybe, and it impacts the whole family. There's, there's maybe no vehicle. You can't get to a job, or you have no place to live, maybe, or maybe you do not even have enough money to purchase food, and yes, that has happened in our own community of faith here in this wealthy suburb. And you might hear of those needs and just give personally of your things, of your possessions to support those who are in need here in the church body and you're giving to Christ Himself. Or, as Thomas just said earlier, we have a church benevolence fund, this helping hands ministry. It's separate from our general account. It's overseen by the elders and deacons. We are receiving an offering today for our helping hands fund. Every penny that goes into that box back there, every penny that's received in the helping hands fund will be used to meet needs. Will be used to meet the needs, first of all, of our church members. That would be the priority of that fund. But then second of all, it would go to meet the needs of those who are regular attenders here. And third, it would go to those who would be our neighbors. Just people around us in, in, in our neighborhoods or at our workplaces who might have needs uh, in, in some way. And over the past few years, man, praise God, we've been able to distribute over $40,000 to meet the needs primarily of our own members. Secondarily, the, the regular attenders and then, and then our neighbors. And you could give directly to, to that fund here today. That right there, that helping hands fund, that is a very practical uh, uh, way that you can, you can very literally meet the needs of your fellow believers here in this church family. You think about this helping hands fund. You really are taking your things and you are laying them down at the feet, not of the original apostles, but you are really laying them down at the feet of your elders and deacons, and you are saying, here, will you please distribute this as any have need? That's a fourth characteristic here of a healthy community of faith is charity. And one final characteristic here of a healthy community of faith is grace. If you look at verse 33 again, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. <laughs> great grace there. It could literally be translated as mega grace. <laughs> I have boys in my home. I have one little boy, for example, who just loves anything that is mega. Mega powerful, man. Mega superhero. And this is mega grace upon all of the believers in this community of faith. And, and that right there is probably the number one characteristic of a healthy community of faith. There is great grace, mega grace, on all the believers in that community of faith. Grace, it refers to God's undeserved favor. 
And so to have great grace upon you is a really good thing. A lot of God's undeserved favor upon you is really good for a local church like, like this. And, 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 you know, there's a sense in which every true Christian community, whether it's healthy or not healthy, has great grace. Every true Christian community, healthy or not, has received loads of God's undeserved favor because every true Christian has received great grace. We are sinners by nature, the Bible says. And please hear me. The Bible is very, very clear that as sinners, as as rebels against God in our natural-born fallen state, we, we, we do not deserve from God His favor. No, the only thing that we actually deserve from God as sinners, as rebels against Him, is His eternal wrath. Ephesians 2 says that in our fallen sinful condition, we are children of God's wrath. But man, because, because of God's infinite love for us, even in our sin, He sent the Lord Jesus to do what? He sent the Lord Jesus to take that wrath in our place. The Bible says that Jesus is, is our propitiation, which means that Jesus is our wrath-bearing substitute. He takes the wrath in our place. And man, if you then just simply turn from your sin and repentance and you cling to Christ in, in, in faith, here's the great news. You now don't get that which you deserve. You don't get the very deserved wrath, but you now get a very undeserved favor from God. You get grace. You get loads of God's grace. You get loads of God's undeserved favor. The Bible says that you are saved by grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound which saved a wretch like me. And man, you you take then just two or three genuine Christians who've been saved by grace. They have received God's grace. Well, listen... That little community then, no matter how healthy or unhealthy they are together, they have already received great grace. They've received lots of God's undeserved favor. But here's the thing. As Christians who have now been saved by grace, well, there are things that you can now do in the Christian life to avail yourself or to open yourself up to receive more and more of God's grace. There are things you can do in the Christian life to open yourself up to more of of God's grace. Theologians, they talk about the ordinary means of grace. And by that, they, they just mean that there are some very ordinary avenues or channels through which God supplies Christians with more grace. Or there are some very ordinary things you can do in the Christian life to receive more grace from God. And what are these ordinary means of grace, these ordinary channels through which God will supply you as a Christian with even more of his undeserved favor, his grace? Well, most theologians talk about four ordinary means of grace. And the first three being the word, prayer, and corporate worship, which includes the Lord's Supper and baptism. If you as a Christian, if you will give yourself to the Word of God, You will read it. You will seek to understand it. You will seek to meet Jesus in the Word. If you will give yourself to prayer by yourself and with other believers. If you will commit yourself to the corporate public worship of God's people in your local church like this right here today. If you will give yourself to those ordinary means of grace, God will supply you through those ordinary means of grace with more and more grace. Grace upon grace. But you know what? There's a fourth ordinary means of grace. And do you know what it is? It's fellowship or community. Fellowship 
or community. If you as a Christian are committed to biblical community with the other Christians in your local church, you're not just meeting together once a week on Sunday morning, but you're, you're actually doing the things that we see in passages like this. You're committed to that type of community. You're working hard for unity with the other Christians in your church. You're freely sharing your things with those other Christians. You're seeking to witness to the loss with those other Christians. You're meeting the needs of your fellow needy Christians. If you as a Christian will practice in your life this type of healthy, robust community, well, that is an ordinary means of grace. And you are now availing yourself. You are opening yourself up to receive more grace from God. Grace upon grace. If you neglect the community in your local church family, you are cutting yourself off from an ordinary means of grace. And your growth as a Christian, as an individual, independent, isolated Christian, your growth will be stunted. Very much so. Because God didn't design for you to function as a solitary lone Christian, but in community. May God help us to do it. God has given us here, I believe, a little picture of what a healthy church, a healthy community of faith looks like. There's there's a striving for unity. There's, there's, There's generous charity, bold witness, great grace upon all. And a community like that, please hear me on this, it's very countercultural. Listen, the culture in which you now live here in America... Most people are very independent, very individualistic, very, very isolated, just me and my family. But God has created us for community. He's created us for relationship, and you will be transformed in and by relationship. May God help all of us to practice a very healthy, biblical community, and great grace will be upon us all. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the instructions in your word, which are so good and helpful and and clear to us, Lord God. We do pray, Father, just for more understanding when it comes to community. Pray, Lord God, for uh, the Spirit to move us towards good biblical community. We thank you, Father. Ultimately, in this whole passage, we just see a picture of Jesus who he became one with us, he witnessed to us, he gave of his things for us, he's done all of these things for us. Now, Lord, help us to do these things with and for one another, I pray in the name of Jesus, amen.